really is a pleasure to be back here. I've had such a great weekend, and I, I, I don't mean it um, flip to say that my wife was just sick uh, this morning, uh, that she couldn't make it here, but when the, when the stomach bug goes racing through one's house, it is, uh, you're well aware of that, I'm sure all of you are. Um, if you brought your Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter 11. This weekend, as you know, we have been looking at this question of trying to ask in a fresh way what we mean when we say that we believe something. And I really hope that you have been able to do like I've been trying to do, which is to not take anything for granted, to not assume that that idea of believing is so obvious that it doesn't require any of our scrutiny. Because the Bible obviously focuses on it a lot. Uh, Friday night, we looked at the question of, we began with the question of what faith is not. And we tried to say that faith is not trying to get God to do what you would like him to do. That is, faith being like the power of positive thinking or something like that. Yesterday morning, we tried to look at the question of the relationship between my believing and my thinking. And we found that it was relatively complex how we go about using our minds to understand and apprehend God's truth. Last night, I wanted to ask you a question that I want to continue with this morning. And that is, what does it feel like when I'm believing? Just like the small child who looks up at their parent and says to them, how will I know when I'm in love? How will I know when that feeling is really working in me and on me? How will I know when I'm believing? And last night we tried to suggest that you would know that that was happening in you when you began to look at yourself the way in which the gospel describes you. And it's a very unique self-image. It's in a sense, on the one hand, looking at yourself as being completely unable to do anything on God's behalf, to commend him to you. But on the other hand, realizing that because of that need, he fills it up with his absolute perfect grace. And apprehending that world is in many ways the exercise of faith. This morning, I want to continue that question by trying to fine-tune it yet even more. And I have to confess to you that the passage that we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 11 this morning has bothered me for years. And it was not until about a year and a half ago when I had the assistance uh, of a Bible teacher to help unlock these initial verses of Hebrews 11 for me because I don't feel like I ever really understood them until uh, with his assistance. Now, whether or not I'll be able to describe it to you <laughs> is a whole other story, but at least it's been helpful to me. Uh, and I really do hope that since this is a Sunday school setting, uh, that we can be a bit more, a bit less formal than we typically are. And so maybe at the end, it would be a nice time to interact with each other if you feel like there's questions or, or even uh, um, insights that you might be able to share as we both come to equally learn about this. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, verses uh, 1 and 2. Let's give our attention this morning to God's Word. The writer says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. This is God's word for us this morning. Um, I was listening about a year and a half ago to Bible teacher Paul Tripp, uh, who at that time was um, uh, doing a radio program. It's sort of a, a weekly spotted Christian uh, directed radio program where he would take 
a topic and begin to sort of unpack it from a biblical perspective and try to bring Bible teaching alive to, uh, in our day. And what Tripp began to speak about, and I started listening to his radio program a while back, on one episode was an episode called The Power of the Imagination. And I remember thinking, what in the world is a Christian teacher doing talking about the imagination? Why and how would those two things be connected to each other? And as he got into his lesson, halfway through, I began to think, now he's starting to go where I've been going in my mind but couldn't put my hands around. Look, I simply want you to, to go with me for a bit this morning in looking at, the, at, at what you have in your capacity to imagine. Paul Tripp suggests that we are, because we are human beings, it, there is evidence that you and I are a bunch of dreamers. We are wired to be dreamers because we have this activity where we are constantly conjuring up visions of a way in which we see our life being that constitute everything of a dream. We have the ability to envision what is real and imagine it, or what is unreal, and imagine it as if it is already real. And the power of these dreams is astounding, in my opinion. Our dreams have the ability to influence everything that we do. They influence the decisions that we make. They influence the possibilities that you entertain about your future. They influence the relationships that you'll make, the people that you will and will not interact with. They even influence the work that you do. That is that activity that you engage in when you get up every morning. In other words, your dreams and your imagination are at work all the time. There are times in which there'll be things that you find to be sad. There'll be times in which, in which you'll find things that, you, that, that are compelling to you. But all of those emotions, if you think about why they move us in the way in which they do, are because they are attached to our dreams. Look, every single morning you wake up with the mortar of your time and your energy. You ever thought about that? And you begin every single day to construct a tower of dreams. Sometimes your dreams are unreasonable. Sometimes your dreams are dangerous. Sometimes our dreams are God-honoring. Sometimes our dreams are not. But I would submit to you, and so does Tripp, that you will never escape the fact that you are a dreamer, a powerful dreamer. And to be honest with you, your dreams are one of the things that separate you from the rest of creation. Your ability to imagine a world around you separates us from the animal kingdom. We don't operate by instinct in the way in which they do. What we've been given is this power to see worlds in our minds, th situations in which we might find ourselves that don't even exist right now. Have you ever thought about this? And honestly, it gets to the very heart of how we function. The power of the imagination, that's the first thing. But notice, secondly, the purpose of your imagination. Because I want to submit to you that this is actually an ability that God gave to you as a human creature. Because we have a problem when we're relating to God, do we not? I wonder if you've ever thought about this question. When we're trying to relate to God, there is a huge gap between us, is there not? 
Because we live in a physical world of sight and sound. We apprehend things because they appeal, as it were, to our senses. But God, however, lives in an immaterial realm. God is, is, belongs to a world of realities that are to us unseen. Obviously, right? And so here comes the question. If it is true that this kind of God who lives in an immaterial world is, wants to have a relationship with physical human beings, how are they going to interact? I bet you've never thought about this question. How is it that an invisible God is going to have a relationship with creatures from a visible universe and remain unseen? I'll be honest with you. I've had college students that have really pressed me with this question at Ole Miss. They will press me with the question of, to be honest, Les, I don't understand why it is that God remains so cloaked in mystery. Why all the invisibility? <laughs> Why doesn't God just sort of make himself visible so that we can apprehend him? I think it's because God wants for us to rely upon our imaginations. And he granted us the power of our imaginations to bridge this gap between the physical world and the unseen world. That is the primary place where this happens. Now look, what we typically, and you've got to correct your understanding here. I am not saying that your imagination is the ability to conjure up something that does not exist. That's not what I said. <laughs> no, imagination is the ability to be able to see something that is altogether real, but to our present eyes, because of sin and misunderstanding, it is unseen. You follow that? We can't see the visible realities. We do not have sort of ocular <laughs> engagement with the angels and the world that God inhabits in the space around us of all times. Look, y'all, we have this profound ability to see a world of unseen realities. And you do realize that those things exist, do you not? I mean, just as real as the pew that you are sitting in this morning is this world of unseen realities but that are unseen because they are primarily spiritual in nature. And so God gave us this ability to see what is unseen so that we can bridge the gap between us. Therefore, we have a capacity to imagine him. And this ability is, gives us such distinction in our senses to be able to do it. It's a profound ability. Eugene Peterson is a great Bible teacher teaching up at Regents uh, uh, Seminary up in Vancouver, <clears throat> and and uh, Peterson says this in his book, Subversive Spirituality. He says, for Christians whose largest investment in life is the invisible, the imagination is indispensable. Now, what I find amazing is, is that we never talk about it. <laughs> and that's what I'm trying to open up to you here. Okay, so that's the purpose. We see the presence of the imagination. We see the purpose of the imagination. But thirdly, notice, though, that there is a problem with our imaginations. This gets to sort of the nub of it all. Because this is where it becomes very spiritually important. Because the more that I begin to live in the realm of my dreams, the more these dreams become very detailed. We have ideas about ourselves that eventually come to control us. In other words, without my even necessarily exercising conscious choice in the matter, I begin to entertain dreams that become so vivid for me, 
ways of picturing myself and my role in God's world that become so powerful that all of a sudden I come under the control of those dreams. Suddenly it's no longer me that's conjuring up the image, it's the image that's actually informing me who I am. I pursue those dreams. It becomes a prized possession for me. And it doesn't take me long before I suddenly think that my life would be completely empty if I didn't have this dream. In other words, I no longer hold that dream. The dream holds me. And before long, my sense of identity, my sense of contentment, my sense of satisfaction are built around these self-constructed dreams that are my projection of the world around me. Something has kidnapped my imagination. Something has actually done something in me that I don't even know. My imagination has been captured. It's been captured. And suddenly, my spirituality has been captured as well. It was never meant to be this way, by the way. (laughs) Look, all other dreams that we have as human beings were intended in God's design to be subservient to God's dream for me, if you will. In other words, my dream is supposed to be part of the larger glorious dream that God is constructing to draw glory to himself. That is the world. (laughs) It's the catechism answer. What is your chief end, O man, except to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? In other words, that the catechism is simply saying that my dreams are supposed to be about the larger vision that God is carrying out in this world. I've been building, though, unfortunately, my own personal tower to heaven. And every day when I get up, out living outside of God's dream for me, I put bricks and mortar on that tower every single day. To be honest with you, oftentimes God has nothing to do with the dreams that I'm constructing. It shapes my words. It shapes my action. It even shapes my hope to even press on. In other words, that dream has me. Oh, I still go to church. I still put money in the offering plate. I will read my Bible and I'll pray. I might even listen to the sermon. I'll go to small groups. I'll venture out onto church retreats. I haven't forsaken the faith, but something profound has happened to me. And that is that God is out of the picture of my everyday life. He is no longer a part of what I'm doing when my dreams begin to take me over in that particular way. Look, I'm simply trying to pitch at you this idea. We get very hung up on the question of what we mean when we use the word worship. For most of us, worship is what we're going to do here in about 45 minutes when we gather together in this place and there's, there's hymnody and there's a liturgy and there's things to talk about and we'll pray and then the preacher will come up and give us a sermon. That, that sort of is the narrow definition of worship and that's not a bad definition of worship, but it's very limited in what the Bible says that we are doing all the time. The Bible says you are a dreamer who is constructing visions of yourself and the world around you and your place in that world. And because you're constructing those things, unless your dreams are informed by God's dreams, your dreams for your own world will hijack you and actually enslave you. The Bible has a word for these dreams. They're called idols. You ever done a study through the Ten Commandments and thought that you were A-OK after the first one? (laughs) 
You said the Ten Commandments and you're like, okay, let's buckle up. We're going to look at the Ten Commandments. Let's see how I'm doing. I'll take a measure of it. You shall have no other gods before me, the Ten Commandments says. And you suddenly think to yourself, I'm okay on that one. I haven't had any statues in my house in months, right? I, I haven't bowed down and kissed the feet of some statue. It, it's been years less since I've bowed down and worshipped an idol. But that's, idolatry is far more subtle than, than to actually have physical statues. The idolatry can very well be things that we are constructing in our mind that picture the world around us in such a way that the, the very purpose of my life becomes something to keep God out of my life. The Bible calls it idols. And now I want you to sort of understand that this was the, this was the launching pad for me to understand Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 2, mainly verse 1. Because this is the sort of locus classicus in the Bible of where people get their definition of faith. It's one of the few places in the New Testament where the writer says, now faith is dot, dot, dot. And it just gives us the definition like you were defining it in school or something, right? And notice what he says. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And all of a sudden, while I was listening to, to uh, Paul Tripp in this radio show, I thought, the writer is talking about our imagination. He is talking about the function of our imagination. Now, what's interesting is, is if you look at chapter 11, verse 1 in Hebrews in context, you find that in chapter 10, he has just talked about the danger of how easy it is to fall away. Beware lest this faith that you think that you are constructing is not a true, genuine faith in the real Lord Jesus Christ, but is rather a constructed faith that is nothing more a projection of your dreams or your idols. And he says in verse 35, not to throw away your confidence. He says it again in verse 38, that the righteous one shall live by faith. There's the key word, right? Faith, therefore, he says, has something to do with this confidence. And what it means is, is that we have this ability to conceive of something we don't have. That is something that is hoped for, or we might say that is not seen. You know what that sounds like to me? That's your imaginations. Your imaginations at work. And this is, what I, this is where I'm going with this this morning. The activity of faith is the ability for God's word to make it to the level of your imaginations so that the things that we are seeing, the way in which we even understand our very lives is being informed by God's dream for us rather than our dreams for ourselves. I'll be honest with you, this began to unlock and open doors for me that I never considered I never considered the power of the imagination and the power of how much faith informs this. If you begin to sort of see these two things working. Faith is using and drawing upon our imaginations to see the world the way God says it is and not the way I wish that it could be. That's it. That's the Sunday school lesson in one sentence. And let me see if I can illustrate it for you from the conversion story of C.S. Lewis. I, know, I wonder how many of you know how C.S. Lewis, this great 
you know, 20th century uh, theologian, without question, one of the more imaginative minds that God in his good providence graced us with in the, uh, <clears throat> in the 1900s. But C.S. Lewis, prior to becoming a Christian, was actually a very, uh, very thoroughgoing and thoughtful uh, atheist slash agnostic. Uh, he would go on to say that it depended on when you caught him, whether or not he felt like he, there really was no God or whether he just didn't know if there was a God. But this also happened to be a man who was an English don at uh, Oxford University, the, <laughs> the other Oxford University on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, he was the one who, who was, had possessed a, a Ph.D. in medieval literature and is probably one of the foremost 20th century thinkers in um, uh, English mythology and myth. Um, and a thoroughgoing atheist prior to his conversion. But things began to change when he began to build a friendship with a man by the name of J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien and Charles Williams and C.S. Lewis had a bit of a drinking club that would meet uh, uh, multiple evenings of the week at a local pub there in Oxford. And you can only imagine what it must have been like to sit on the sidelines of those three men sort of going at it a couple times during the week. But Tolkien was himself a very faithful uh, practicing Roman Catholic at that time and was extremely influential in C.S. Lewis's conversion. And Lewis would go on to say in his spiritual autobiography that the, really, the, the time at which Christianity became the most compelling to him was in a late night conversation and stroll around the commons area there in Oxford with Tolkien. They were walking around and considering various matters of the Christian faith, and Lewis was doing his, his best to sort of go up against uh, what his friends called Ronald uh, uh, Tolkien's. Uh, can you imagine these two massive intellects having this conversation while taking a stroll around the little commons area there in Oxford? And as they spoke back and forth, at one point, Tolkien began to speak to Lewis about the power of fairy tales. At least that was Tolkien's way of talking about it. Tolkien had just written what is, quite honestly, a very dense essay, if you've ever had a chance to read it, called On Fairy Stories. Fairy Tales. And he was talking with Lewis about the nature of fairy tales and about the power that stories have over us. And about the way in which when oftentimes they tell us they move us. That when we, when we get around certain stories, we all of a sudden get the impression that the story is no longer some sort of external thing, but it's kind of, it's kind of grabbed you. Have you ever described a story in being that way? And, and Tolkien is there trying to appeal to Lewis about this power. Have you ever noticed this? And all of a sudden, Lewis says something profound. He says, this was the turning point. Lewis looks at Tolkien and says, yes, Ronald. But aren't all the myths nothing more than happy lies, though set in silver? And of course, what does he mean? He says, but look, Tolkien, the myths are just myths. <laughs> in other words, those stories are nothing more than made-up ideas that we conjured in our minds and that we, we told tales. Oh, they're happy lies, but they're set in silver for us because they go down easy. They go down nice. And Tolkien looked at him and literally, Lewis says he stopped him, stopped him along his way and held him by the arm and looked at him and, and in not so many words basically said this. Yes, Lewis, but what if there was a larger story 
that was real. In other words, what if there was a true story that itself encompassed all the other stories? In other words, what if what happened 2,000 years ago on a hill on Calvary with Jesus of Nazareth being crucified was God enacting an ultimate story? That is, the big story that's being told in the midst of human history of which you and I are only characters. And what if, therefore, Jack, I'm sure Tolkien called Lewis, <laughs> what if, therefore, Jack, the reason why these stories grab us the way in which they do is because they connect us with that story? And that suddenly God actually has a story that we, that we want so desperately to be true. Tolkien uses a very academic word. I think that he might have even coined, if I'm not mistaken, the word eucatastrophe. In the Greek mind, the catastrophe was a world-changing event. It didn't mean necessarily a disaster. It meant a world-changing event, something that was so huge and so massive in history that nothing was the same afterwards. And by putting the little prefix "u" on there, it puts the word good. And Tolkien begins to appeal to Lewis and say, let me ask you a question, Jack. Isn't there something that rings true inside your heart when you see the happy ending? You know what I'm talking about? When you get to the end and you suddenly find that they really all did live happily ever after. And he looks at Lewis and he says, what if all of a sudden those things were true? Because here we have in the moment, and what's interesting is, is Hollywood in our day sort of relishes the idea that the happy ending is absolutely false. Who really wants it? It's very interesting. I find Steven Spielberg a fascinating example of this. You know, Hollywood would not grant Steven Spielberg a, um, uh, an Academy Award until he started making depressing movies, right? You know, early on in his day, you know, when he makes E.T. Uh, or he makes Hook, <laughs> He specializes in the story craft of the happy ending, but it's not until he tells sad stories that they suddenly grant him a pass. In other words, what Hollywood is only able to see is the darkness of the cross. They see the problem in the world and they look at those people who long for happy endings and they say, you don't know what the world is really like. The world is dark. The world is foreboding. The world is a place where the truth is it all ends ugly. But see, that's not the whole story, Tolkien says to Lewis, because the story of the Christian faith is that eventually resurrection comes after death. And that we have a God who goes into dying places and brings about resurrection. And he looks at Lewis and says, what if that's true? What if it's absolutely true? And the reason why we're caught up by the happy ending is because we know that it must be true. And you know what's funny? The happy endings are still the things that sell the most. We, we call it pop culture for a reason. We love to see those stories where all of a sudden, you know, victory is snatched out from the jaws of defeat. We love to see the story where the poor and the downtrodden and the mistreated and the misrepresented are suddenly vindicated in the end. We long to look and see where all of a sudden there have been circumstances that were out of someone's control, but all of a sudden they wake up one day and say, Wow, it all meant something. We love those stories. 
And you know what? We buy those stories. We consume those stories. You want to know why? Because we're created in the image of a God who is telling a story in human history that will itself have a happy ending. Hmm. I want to try to appeal to your imaginations this morning. <laughs> I, I, I wonder if you have not noticed that your life, the way you understand your life, has in many ways a narrative function. I tell my students this. I said, you do realize that your life is a movie. Your life is a movie with you as the star. And there are times in which your movie is, you know, a, a, a happy movie. It's a light movie. It's a carefree movie. Sometimes your movie looks like it's a tragedy where you look around you and you can't see how in the world God is going to make sense of such a mess that I've made of my life. There may be times in which your, your, your life, your, the movie of your life is an adventure. I've got a hill to climb, a mountain to conquer. But we see ourselves in the narratives. We see ourselves in the story. And this is one of the reasons why the movies move us. It's the reason why all of a sudden we can be driving down a street and, and that certain song comes on the radio. You know the one. The one that you listen to that all of a sudden brings you right back. Right back to where you used to be. And you suddenly find yourself lighthearted again. It brings back memories, an idea. I don't know about you, but it can even happen to me when I'm watching commercials. <laughs> you ever watched a commercial where 30 seconds later you're kind of going, that's so true. <laughs> the stories grab us. And all I want to do is to throw this thought out to you. Is it not possible? What if the myth became fact? C.S. Lewis would go on to write an essay by that very name. Myth became fact. It's the story of his own conversion. That as he looked at the stories, he suddenly realized that the reason why he longed for the happy ending is because God was a God who was telling a story that had a happy ending. So that what that meant is no matter how dark my life gets, and no matter how much death I feel creeping up inside me, whether it be the spiritual death of anxiety and hurt, or my own impending death as I look and grapple with my mortality. That we follow a God who brings about resurrections. That he is a God who, who in Christ snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. <laughs> that he is a God who took someone who was poverty stricken for whom the world had completely ignored in a stable, in a poverty-stricken area of, of, of Palestine, of all places, and suddenly changed the entire world. That the ultimate underdog is now seated at the right hand of God the Father and is, has authority over all things. My friends, what if those stories actually compel us because there's something about them that are true? Look, <clears throat> I want to pitch to you one last simple thought. To live faithfully, to be a person of faith means at least two things. Number one, we are looking at our stories and all the stories around us to see God's fingerprint on every area of life. The Christian loves to enter into other people's stories and say, don't you see that God has been trying to make himself known to you? Don't you see his hand weaving through all of these experiences? But on the other hand, a Christian has a second responsibility, not just to recognize God's fingerprint, 
but also to go into those other stories and show how our own dreams for personal sovereignty have been reinforcing faulty gods. That our own dreams have suddenly come and tried to sort of refashion and reshape and make this dream to be something that's false. And so in every story that we see, we realize that we have something that we, have, that we can commend. We can see God's hand at work. But we will have something that we will have to condemn. Why? Because we sinners have our fingerprints all over it. I love this idea of, of a definition of faith. That God comes into a life and begins to retell Les Newsom's story. Centered though around God's story about Jesus. And the more that that story becomes my story, the more faithfully I am living. And the more that my dreams are united to his. And in that I see God. Okay, there. That's my imagination discussion. <laughs> I don't know whether it sticks in your craw or whether it violently disagrees with you. But you're my first guinea pigs. That's the first time I've ever done that lesson. But do we have, what, what's our time here? Let me see where we are. Well, you just need to be wrapped up in about five minutes, don't we? You have a few minutes? I, I, I'd love to enter. It's been a lot of material this weekend, and obviously we've got one more for our service, but it's a daunting crowd to actually think about the possibility of questions and answers. But any thoughts, even personal reflections? Sometimes we all help by processing things together. It's always fun to do with, with college students because you really have no earthly idea where they're headed <laughs> with those kinds of questions. So that'll be all right. Look, let me just encourage you that um, we may need to re-examine our stories. If nothing else, watch this week how much it sort of captures your imagination to see stories played out all around you and to understand how those things can be retold by the gospel is really a part of what it means to be believing people. So... Yeah, that'll be our challenge. Let me pray for us and we'll close this early. Nobody ever complains that the preacher finished too short, right? No, go longer. Nobody says that. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you then give us the grace to realize that even now, even this very moment with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we are conjuring up something in our mind about this very conversation and we recognize that even this conversation has been muddled and confused in many ways by our, by our vain imaginations. And that we need to hear from you. We need to hear from you about you so that we can think your thoughts after you, as the theologian has said. And so, Lord Jesus, that means that you're going to have to give us a vision of what you did on the cross 2,000 years ago that is more than just a detached, arbitrary, historical event, but rather is the very power of God at enacting something going on in human history that itself is the story. And if we could see ourselves as part of that larger story, our lives might be transformed. There might be true and radical and deep change that would happen in us. And so, Lord Jesus, would you guide us into that? Help us to know that we are not too far gone, that we have not pushed past your ability to change us, that you are not through with us yet. So God, if you would be so kind as to grace us with that presence here in this place because of our time this morning, we would be so grateful. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.